became the rescuing king, not just of the Hebrew people. He became the rescuing king for all nations, the king of all peoples, which involves, it requires, therefore, that we believe he is victorious. He's a victorious king. So what does that even mean? Well, it means lots of things. But a few things are he's, he's, he has victory over the world. Whatever you think of whatever the world is, he actually has victory over it. He has the, the, the victory of God's kingdom, his, God's way of doing things. Um, that has overcome the way that the world does things. The rulers of the world, he, he stands victorious over them. He is the victory of God to restore people to himself and also people to their rightful place in the world. He's claimed victory over these things. And as simplistic as this may sound, I think it's a helpful one. For me, it's a helpful one. What is he victorious over? He is the victory of love and rightness and life over hate and sin and death. He has victory. So this raises all kinds of questions. All right, we're not going to answer all of those questions today. It's something for us to continue to have conversations about. What does it mean? When we talk about the victory of Jesus, what do we even mean by that? And what do we not mean by that? Because I think there's a lot of twisted ways that we can view that. What does it mean? I think we've got to keep processing. We've got to keep talking about this in community. We've got to keep praying about it. We've got to keep reading Scripture. So for now, I want to hear, I want us to hear, I want to hear the question John is answering, which is what does that look like for us to believe that Jesus is victorious, and that we are born into this family of God. What does this mean? Well, generally, it's pretty simple, the things we're going to look at. As we get into them, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, but here's, here's the two general ideas that we want to look at. They are, they are, there we go, walking in His way of victory, and then resting in Him as the victor. These are the two big things that John does in these, these verses. So what is his way? Well, when we look at verses 1 and 3, hopefully you've got your Bible still in front of us. You can see what he says in verses 1 and 3. John's describing and he's promoting this way of living because he believes this is the way Jesus overcame. So what John says in verses 1 through 3, that he's telling us how to live, he's saying that because he says he believes this is how Jesus actually overcame the world how he became the victor. What is that way? What was his way? Love and obedience. It was through love and obedience. Um, I want to think through this argument that John lays out. God's way described here and through this whole letter, as we talked about last, at least last week, if not the last several weeks, God's way is love. Like, that's the dominant theme, especially when we get through about halfway through the first John. His whole way, his way is described as love. Who does he say we are to be loving? Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at the second part of verse 1. He says, love the Father or love God, right? What is love? Who are you to be loving? Love God. All right, so how do you do that? How do you love God? It says in the second half of verse 1, And everyone who loves the Father loves who? Loves whoever has been born of Him. Okay. So we love the Father by loving those born of Him. Loving others. We love those He loves. 
That's how we love the Father. Okay, that, that makes sense. So, how do we love others? That's good. Now we know. We love others. Or how do you know if you're loving others? Well, verse 2 says, By this you know we love the children of God when we love God and obey the command, His commandments. So we love others by loving God and obeying His commandments. All right? Do you see what's happening here? So we love God how? By loving others. And we love others how? By loving God and obeying His commands. And how do we love God? By loving others. Isn't that what he just said? Isn't that just circular reasoning? What's going on here? This can, be, um, this can be mentally taxing. Like, where are you going with this, John? Are we going anywhere? If we're just trying to find a linear path to love or a rule of love or even rules to obey, you're going to, you're going to spin in circles. But if we step back, this is describing the very nature of love. It's always moving towards others it's spreading, it's including others, it's expanding. It won't let us settle on a list of things to do for God and for others. So if Fran, the way for me to love Fran is to be on time. <laughs> um, I fail miserably, by the way. But let's say the last five times I was on time. Clearly, I love my wife. I obeyed the law. I mean, even saying that, it's like something's like, yeah, that's a good thing. But really, that's it? You loved your wife because you were on time? Okay, well, there's, there's something like something fundamentally wrong with thinking if a list of you obeying a list of rules is going to be the way that you love people. All right, so where does this love cycle end? Like, love God or love people and love people by loving God and love God by loving, like, where does this love cycle end? It doesn't end. Um, I, I love you not just by loving you, but by loving those you love. It's about communal care. I think that's what he's getting at. It's communal care. Um, how do you, and, and I've talked about this before. If you want to love me, who do you love? Love that woman. Love my children. Honestly, if you want to love me, love each other. If you want to love me, love this city. That's the best way you can ever love, like personally, you can love me. I, 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 think, I'm, I think I said this several weeks back. I'm beginning to understand that. All right, okay, okay, but what does it look like? What does it actually look like? For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, well, what are the commandments? What are the commandments? All right, Jesus gives us a good summary of them. All right, a few times we get this in the Gospels. So in Matthew 22, some of the religious leaders are testing him, and they come to him, and they say, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And I know many of us may be familiar with. So he said to them, You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, everything that God has been saying, these two commandments are the basis for all of that stuff. He's doing a very similar argument, though, of what he, he this is happening very similar to what First John is doing. What are the commandments? Love. How do you love? Keep the commandments. How do you keep the commandments? Love. Right? It's this circular thing. 
But this is so critical, I think, for our understanding. I know it is for me, because I've been a little bit frustrated with John this week, trying to process this, like, what does it mean? But I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate it. The commands were always more about just the commands. They were never about just the commands. It's about helping us love and showing us how to do so. That's what the commands were there for in the first place. God's commands are about communal care and about God's care through us and for us. And often I think about the commands, and I think we think about the commands, and and the world can see commands and rules and laws as ways of controlling people, of ways of oppressing people, of exercising power to benefit the interest of the rule makers. And that is true. We do that. But it doesn't have to be true. Does it? With God, though, many have tried to co-opt his commands in this way. Right? This was, this was, if not all of Jesus' battles. It feels like it was most of his battles while he was teaching, while he's engaging the religious leaders, those who were co-opting God's commands for their purposes to control and to oppress, right? And Jesus was obliterating them because God's commands for us are not about control and oppression, but freedom and flourishing. That's why he gives this to us. Keeping the commands is not about a certain list of rules of, or, or social norms to make us feel bad about ourselves. Like, this isn't a, like, read this and so you beat yourself up. I don't think that was ever his intent, nor is it to elevate our status in society or make us acceptable to, to God or to other people or give us a sense of superiority and power. That was never the purpose of God giving the commands. Jesus obliterates this stuff with his life and his teaching, but especially if you go back and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Sermon on the Mount, this is one of the long sections in, John, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and he's telling us what the kingdom looks like. What does it look like to live in his kingdom? And he says things like this. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say everybody who's angry with his brother is already liable for ju- to judgment. What does that mean? Jesus seems to be saying, hey, good job. You didn't kill anybody today. Pat yourself on the back. Well done. Good, good, good. But you've missed the law because you haven't cared for each other. You haven't loved your brother. Under the specific commands of God is a deeper law, a deeper love, a deeper care. It's a working for the best interest of others. That's underneath every single law. When we miss When we lose sight of that, we lose sight of what God is actually doing when he gives us commands. This helps us learn how to engage culture, I think. When we start to see this, it helps us learn how better to engage culture and how to read the Bible and to rightly understand God and what his commands are about. We are to look for the heart of love in and under the laws of life. Look for the heart of love underneath these laws of life, which Jesus took to a whole new level when he was teaching, when he was preaching the scriptures, right, of the Old Testament. But he's also, it's really just bringing light to what God had always been saying through what we call the law and the prophets. There's nothing new that he was bringing to the table He was just bringing light to what God had already said. Why do I say that? Well, there's plenty of places we could go for this, 
as far as how the law is really supposed to be used, Isaiah is one of these places that really hammers it home. And I happen to be reading in Isaiah right now, so that's why it probably comes to my mind. The beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, there's this comment where it says, Hear the word of the Lord. What, what, what to me... Okay, so Israel is off the rails at this point, and Isaiah is saying, Wake up, wake up, wake up. He says, what is, what is it to me... What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I, I've had enough of your burnt offerings and of your rams. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring it no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Well, wait a minute, this is what God told him to do. And God says, I want nothing. I want nothing to do with that. Even though, even though you make many prayers, I, I'm not going to listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What's God saying? You may be following much of the laws when it comes to the sacrifices, the prayers, whatever those laws are, but you are far from me, from the heart of my law. Doing good to others, seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause. His laws were always about a deeper care for others, working for their good, working for the thriving of other people, never a tool to justify my actions or my failure to love, which is how I like to use the law. But for Jesus, this is the way he kept the commandments. He understood the, the heart of the law. He understood that it was about selflessly loving his father and others. And this, I'm saying all this to say, this is how he overcame the world. This is the way he did it. Not by wielding the law as a baseball bat or using it to lord power over others. Not even, not even by promoting his self-righteousness. Like Jesus could have easily used the law to say, look how great I am. I mean, I don't I don't know that that's in scriptures at all. He doesn't use it that way. But by doing only what he saw the Father doing, which apparently was giving himself away for the care, for the good, for the reconciliation, for the health of other people. He was doing everything he could for the health of other people. And as we believe that this way of love and obedience is and was his way of victory, if we believe that's actually, I mean, is that good when we start seeing the way that he did life? Is that actually attractive to us? If it is, what does it do to us? When we start actually, like not because, oh my gosh, I've got to do this, but holy cow, that's beautiful. What does it do to us? I mean, it makes me at least want to walk in this way. It at least makes me want to walk in this kind of a victory which ironically, as we start doing this, trying to better care for others, when we start working for their best, God seems to use this as the way to care for us and to work for our flourishing. Here's the irony. The more you give yourself away, the more God actually uses that to do in us what we actually want to get done, a change of our very being. God loves, God's love for us 
working out our best interest actually happens as we keep His commandments. This is, this is how he, he loves us, is by us, in some way, keeping His commandments. He's doing something for us. So, again, lots of places we could go. In the book of Jeremiah, again, Israel's off the rails. They've been exiled from their land. They've been cast out of their place, and they've been placed someplace else. And so, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says this. He says, but look, when you're there. You're already there. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, in its welfare, what does he say? You'll find your welfare. You seeking its welfare, you'll actually find its, your welfare. When we see and we hear some of what God says in his law about himself and how we are to think and to live, do you always like what you see? Okay, like honestly, do you always like what you see? I don't, I don't always like what I see, especially when something challenges. When, don't I, when I, don't I like it? I like it when I think I'm doing what he says, but I don't like it when it starts to challenge my comfort or, or my desire for um, whatever or when it complements my current belief system um, and when I think it serves me well. Like, I really like those things. I enjoy those things. But the law doesn't always do that to you, does it? Uh, let's pick some low-hanging fruit, okay, when it comes to this. Do not commit adultery, okay? That's, that's one of the ten ones, ten biggies, right? Don't commit adultery. I, it make, that one makes sense to me. Faith, I really don't want Fran cheating on me. I'd prefer her not to, right? I don't, I don't want that. I kind of want to be faithful. Faithfulness, that makes sense. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a loving thing. I understand the basis. I think I understand the basis of that. But what about, okay, here's where it starts to push in. What about when your spouse just doesn't really love you like you want? Um, and you have a new friend, right, who's, man, she's so in touch with my feelings, with my, my needs, my emotions. And you know, I didn't I don't mean to, but all of a sudden I'm, you know, you feel attraction. I didn't I didn't try to be attracted. It it just kind of happened. That's when don't commit adultery starts to feel a little oppressive to me. Uh, it keeps us from true fulfillment, right? It keeps it, you feel like it's keeping you from true happiness. I mean, all right, come on. Can't I at least, like, fantasize a little bit? Oh, yeah, Jesus said don't do that either. You with me? This is the low-hanging fruit. How the commands, how the law starts to press into us. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Go back to the law, double down. Double down, don't commit adultery, don't even think about it, or scare yourself, and let's scare each other. If you do it, you're going to hell. You're going to burn. How about that one? Double down on it. Does that help? D does it actually make a, make a difference? Does me hammering myself and hammering you, don't do this, you shouldn't do this, or you should do this, what you, the, the argument can be made, yeah, people just need to be more afraid of punishment. People need to be more afraid of, of hell. Uh, 
Okay, I actually believe there is a hell. I think scripture does say that there is a hell. Is that the purpose of us knowing about it? Is so we can bash each other? So we can scare each other? Is is that the way to keep us on the straight and the narrow? Is it going to work? Does it work? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it works for some. I don't know. Tell the alcoholic, stop drinking. Tell the anorexic to eat and stop over-exercising. Tell the angry person to stop being angry and the greedy person to stop being greedy and the late person to stop being late. Are these things true? Do we need to, say, do we need to hear that? Probably. You know, in given situations particular situations, but is it ever going to change anybody? My experience, it just doesn't work. What do we need? We need to experience love. We need to, ex- we need to see the good and the beauty under the law out of which God's law and commandments are built. So, uh, t- Ten Commandments again. You can go and look at them in uh, Exodus 20 and then Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a preamble to the Ten Commandments. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the preamble, the beginning of it. This is what it says. And God spoke all these saying, all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the beginning of the great commandments. Then he goes on and says, you know, you shall not... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any carved images, right? This preamble, the whole of the commandments in the Old Testament are built on what? I have saved you. I want you to flourish. I want you to live in love. That's the basis of the ten. So practically, let's like, what what do we do with this? Where do we where do we go with this? All right, here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw three things out there. Here's where we need community. We need to see God's trustworthiness, and we need to be honest. We need community to lean on, to be vulnerable before, who can be humbly gracious with us. We need grace-centered community who don't just beat us over the head with the law or guilt or shame, but we remind one another of a bigger picture of love and of health and of beauty and God's better way. We need, we need each other to, to, we need to feed that to each other, to pray for and with each other, to help, to help us walk through the fogs of our moments where it's just like, I, I'm going to have the affair. This is where I am. Whatever it is for you, we need community where we can be honest there, right? We can say that and that can carry the pains of our failures, We need that. And that we need to see God's trustworthiness, that He is instructing us for our good. His law, His commandments are actually for our good, even in the heat of our moments and our temptations when it's so hard to see, which gets us back to needing community to remind us of the goodness of God's commands. And then we need to just be honest. Um, How vulnerable and weak we really are, Uh, how shallow our love for God and others really is, 
which leads us not only to walking in his way of victory, right? We want that, but repenting because we haven't done so. I haven't done so. And returning and resting in the one who has and the one who is the real victor. Because if left to myself, the, the way of the world is going to eat my lunch. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take me over every time. It's going to overcome me. We know it's true. We experience it. Let's not pretend that we're not being overcome by the world. We can't do it alone. We need community, but we need so much more than community. We need a victorious rescuer. We need to find rest in his victory. Where is this in the text? Okay, I'm going to argue this is John's assumption throughout the whole book and especially the undercurrent of this section. Why do I say that? Because he says in verses 4 and 5, those who have been born of God, they overcome. Uh, The victory of those overcome, the, the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Those who believe Jesus is the Son of God overcome the world. This would seem to mean he is and he has the victory. John is talking about talking to his people and he's saying we have the victory Because he has victory and we are now associating with him. It's not because you did the victory. It's because he has the victory and now we associate with him. He allows us to share in the victory. Okay? So uh, 2016 and 2018, I think this is right. So Fran and I are alumni of Clemson University. Have you ever heard of Clemson University? You don't have to hear about them this year. You can ignore them this year, but don't ignore them in the past, okay? 2016, 2018, you know what they did in football? What do you think they did in football? Come on, man. They won national champions, right? What do we say when Fran and I talk, when I talk about this? What do I say? We won. I was not on the freaking field. What do we say? We won. Why do we say we won? We won because we associate. We won because he won. He won. We won because he won. He won what? He overcame temptation to to mistrust his father. Jesus overcame this. He overcame the temptation to mistrust his father, to put himself before others. He overcame that temptation. He overcame the temptation to allow hate to overtake his heart of love and his mission of love. He overcame that temptation. And he overcame, he overcame death right? His way of love led him where? First, it led him to our space, led him here to be with us, to serve us. But ultimately, love led him to his cross, his execution. The son who obeyed perfectly because he loved purely was finally tested by the fire of rejection and the scorn of mankind by the loss of friends and his own life. He was tested in this way. He emptied himself originally when he came to the earth. Philippians chapter 2 talks about he emptied himself of, of everything. But that was, he didn't actually empty himself of everything because he went further in life and he emptied himself when he hung naked on a cross, literally leaving it all on the field, giving everything he had, shedding his blood to his dying breath. There's something tragically beautiful about that image. But where's their victory? The victory is the world couldn't corrupt him. All of that. What does it do to me? Tends to make me angry and bitter. What does it do to him? Causes him to pour more love out. 
They could not, we could not corrupt him. He was a better us. He was the better Adam and Eve, if you will. But also because the Father vindicated him in his resurrection. He was restored to life, to this new, better life. And then he ascended back to his Father's space, whatever in the world that means. It at least means this. As the crucified and risen Son, he became the victorious, overcoming King of Kings. Unlike any other, his way actually won. It wasn't a mirage. It it actually won. And he says those who are not just trying to walk in his way, but who are trying to rest in him, benefit from what he has accomplished. And as badly as you think you are losing right now, as anxious as life may be making you right now, as badly as the world may be seeming to come against you and and trying to destroy you, and as much as it seems in the moment that the way of self-love and self-rule and self-preservation and self-protection seems like it is the only way to do life because that's what the world says. You've got to look out for number one. You have to if you want to get ahead. As much as we hear this, Jesus says the way is death. Your way of self is death. And if you try to love your life, you're going to lose it. If you give it up, he says you'll find it. Resting in him is constantly returning and it's rehearsing. He won this is, why, this is a, another reason why we do what we do here. We've got to keep reminding ourselves that he, that he won. He has won. He will win. And his way will win. So what does that mean for us right now? Rest in him as the victor. Rest in him as your hope. Now and forever. No matter how much the world and your own head or the dark unseen forces say... His way of love and obedience, it's never going to work. It just doesn't work. You've tried it. Look what happens to you. People just reject you. As much as you hear that, you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and the anxiety keeps building. As much as you hear that and you hear this, he has abandoned you. Like maybe you don't actually, but really deep inside you think, he's abandoned me. Remember the cross and resurrection saying, no, no, he hasn't. He didn't abandon us. He was abandoned by us. He was abandoned for us. And he still returned to share his victory with all who trust him. So, Father, we need for you to um, take these ideas and press them into us. I know, I know for myself I need this. Lord Jesus, all is lost if you are not a victorious king. But you are. You are the one who has entered into our world, who has lived the way of love to the end. And out of death, you come back and you say, this is the way, not only for us to live life now, this is the life eternal. And you are the victorious king. We are not. 
So Lord Jesus, forgive us for those times that we have tried to be what we are unable to be, to be our own king. And Lord, help us find the freedom that comes by letting go and actually resting in you as the victor, resting in you as the hero. And as a result, shape us and mold us so that we can walk more and more in your way of victory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.